Scripture today is from Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Thank you, Sandy. That's a good passage, armor of God. Last week, we celebrated Purim. How many of you were here? How many of you were not here? Anybody not? Okay, a few. Uh, we read publicly the book of Esther. I hope you found that interesting. It was at least different, wasn't it? It was different, yeah. How many of you have ever sipped grape juice while you've heard the book of Esther read before? Anybody? Bert has. All right. So for everybody but Bert, it was something new. That's good. You know, Esther is a fascinating book. There's a lot more to it than meets the ear. Rachel Wells, who is professor of biblical studies at Andrews University, writes that the irony, the satire, and the humor in this book showcase the incredible skills of the author. And we don't even know who the author is. Most bets are on Mordecai. But she says Esther is well worth reading slowly, carefully, and repeatedly in order to fully savor the drama and saturate the mind with the goodness of God. We will not read Esther again this morning, and there is no more grape juice in the town of Squim, but I decided that since we listened to it last week, it might be worthwhile to spend another week or possibly two on it. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. And we're gonna think about it this morning in terms of courage. Our scripture text talks about courage. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What do you need armor for? Because there's going to be a battle, right? A battle. In this case, a spiritual battle. Forces of wickedness in high places, Paul says. Three times in that little passage, he says, take your stand. Stand firm, and when you've done everything, to stand, okay? Stand your ground. That takes courage. Courage is the ability to deal with something dangerous, difficult, or painful instead of running away from it. The opposite of courage is cowardice. Would you rather be courageous or would you rather be a coward? Well, that's, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? We're seeing courage on display for the whole world to behold in a place called Ukraine, aren't we? Courage is not the same as fearlessness. Fearlessness simply means not scared. Sometimes you ought to be, but you're not. Courage means you do the right thing even though you are scared. There are times when God tells his people 
to be not scared. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warns his followers that they're going to be persecuted just because they've chosen to believe him and to do what he tells them to do. Jesus tells us there will be times when every follower of God will be made to suffer by those who hate God. But Jesus said, don't be afraid of them. Don't let the threat of physical or emotional danger disturb your peace. And then there are other times when God calls his people to be courageous. For example, as the Israelites were about to cross the border into the promised land to begin the conquest of the land that God was going to give them, God said to Joshua, their leader, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. He says it three times, actually, courageous. Why do you suppose that was? Because it was not going to be easy. There was great danger. It would prove to be a tough campaign, and Joshua was feeling fear. So God says, even though you're scared, don't back down. Even though there will be a price to pay, take your stand. The Lord your God will be with you, he says, wherever you go. So stand firm. And that's where courage comes from, by the way. It's from the presence of the Lord. As the hymn writer says, what terror can confound me with God at my right hand? Courage is doing the right thing in spite of fear, and that's what makes it such a wonderful virtue. It requires principled action in the face of impending danger that defies the strong emotional pull to protect yourself and remain in a place of safety. Esther is a book that reads like a thriller when it comes to courage. We think of beautiful Queen Esther facing that critical existential crisis, remembering what had happened to the previous queen who dared to disobey her petulant, temperamental husband, knowing that doing the right thing will likely cost her life. She will be at the very least banished, but probably beheaded, and yet she summons up the courage and says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. We look at this from a from an end-of-the-story perspective, so we don't feel the tension that she felt. We know how it turns out, but Esther didn't know how it was going to turn out going in. It was a terrifying decision that she made. It was likely the end for her, but she goes anyway, and because of her courageous stand, her people are saved from destruction. There is another story in the book of Esther about courage that we don't often think about, maybe even courage greater than that of Esther. But before we get to that story, let me just give you my two-minute recap of the book of Esther for those who weren't with us last week, okay? Here it is, two minutes. Even though some of the exiled Jews have heeded the call to return to their homeland, many have chosen to remain in Persia. They have not come out of Babylon. Among them is Hadassah, 
a beautiful Jewish orphan girl being raised by her uncle Mordecai, an official in the king's court. After the disobedient queen is deposed, Mordecai learns that the prettiest girls in the kingdom can enter a beauty contest, and the winner will be the new queen and wife of King Xerxes. Esther decides to enter the contest, but Mordecai tells her to keep her Jewish heritage a secret, and for four years she does. Even though the competition is long and stiff, Esther wins and becomes the new queen. But even though she is queen, it remains illegal for her ever to approach her husband unless he summons her. If she were to ever come before him unbeckoned, she would be immediately beheaded unless he extends to her a token of grace, the golden scepter. Meanwhile, the wicked and arrogant Haman, who hates Jews, has become second highest ranking man in the kingdom. And because Mordecai the Jew refuses to bow to him or show him any honor, he hits on the idea of wiping out not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. When Mordecai learns of this plot, he tells his niece, the queen, that she must go before King Xerxes, declare her heritage, and intercede for her people. Even though she hasn't been summoned for a long time, and even though she will likely die, she is the last best hope for her people. She must summon up her courage and take a stand, Mordecai tells her, and he clinches it with the famous declaration, who knows, but that you have come to the throne for such a time as this. And in a very brave act, she does exactly that. She defies the direct order of King Xerxes. She comes right into his presence, right into the very throne room of the most powerful monarch on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that sweet, brave Queen Esther must have looked and smelled and walked in her most seductive best that day. Don't you? Because she catches the king's eye and he extends the scepter and he consents to her intriguing invitation, which eventually leads to her revealing her heritage and to the uncovering of Haman's wicked intent and ultimately to the reversal of the plan to exterminate her people. And in a truly ironic reversal, Haman himself and his family become victims of his own evil scheme and he is impaled on the same public pole he built to execute Mordecai. It is truly a book of courage. But there is a second story of courage from the book of Esther, one that most of us overlook, the story of a courageous act a lot more ordinary, but every bit as serious as Esther's. It's the ancient account of the person whose action really paved the way for the whole story. In fact, without this person's brave action, the story of Esther would never have been. Hadassah would have remained Hadassah. Haman would have ruled the day, and the Jews would all have perished. You remember that Esther was not the first queen to defy the king. That standard had already been set by Xerxes' first wife, Queen Vashti. 
Vashti is the other heroine in the book. Let me read you her story. Chapter 1, verse 2. King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the glory of his majesty. What a party that was. Imagine that. Six months. And the party focused on who? King Xerxes, yeah. Who was King Xerxes really into? Himself. He was rich, commanding, arrogant, and self-centered, and probably a royal pain to be around because many people like that are real pains. But some people like being around the king because he threw fabulous parties and he was powerful. The story goes on. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest. Verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to give each man what he wanted. And here's why people liked Xerxes. He gave people whatever they wanted to drink for free. It was a real kegger. People like being around people who give them free stuff. People will sell out their integrity for free stuff. Now something else is going on at the same time Xerxes is throwing his party. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. You understand that the custom of the day absolutely forbade the mixing of men and women together in public parties. That just did not happen. You may think, that's a little strange, but that's the way it was in ancient Persia and even in Persia today. It's true to a great extent. Modern day Iran, what, what do women count for today in Iran and in countries like Iran, huh? Not much, except as breeders, thanks to some of the modern Islamic teaching. But back to the story. By this time, the men are getting good and drunk. And in their inebriation, the conversation eventually turned to the twin topics of war and women as the men boasted to each other of their conquests in both realms. But Xerxes was not about to settle for second place here. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, to bring before him Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now here comes the climax of the story. Here comes the unthinkable. 
But when the attendants delivered the command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Next slide. We're stuck. There it is. Okay, good. Vashti refused to come. Why? Why? Scholars have suggested a number of different reasons. Maybe she was just a radical feminist. That's what some of them say. I don't think that's the case because she had been queen for quite a while and she had played the role correctly thus far. Other commentaries say other things. But to cut to the chase here, I think the bottom line is simply because to comply with her husband's request would have been immoral and degrading. Why? Well, for one thing, most of the men were drunk. And for a second thing, Vashti was known as a looker. In fact, her name actually means beautiful. And scripture tells us she was lovely to look at. So tell me, when a beautiful woman is brought before a bunch of drunken, powerful men at a stag party, what are they going to be doing? Hmm? There will be a lot of lusting going on. And Vashti knows. She's not only a beautiful girl, she's also a smart girl. And I think she probably had a pretty high standard of moral decency maybe even higher than Esther had at the beginning of the story. Think about that. Esther could have refused to come to the beauty pageant back when she was still Hadassah. Couldn't she have? This whole book could have been finished by chapter 2 and verse 8, which would read, Many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, but Hadassah refused to come. It would have been a very costly choice, but she could have said, no, I am not going to compete for the crown by my performance in bed. And if I perish, I perish. But she did not. So the verse actually reads like this. Many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace. Vashti knows the only reason Xerxes wants her is to show off her beauty in front of the guys. Who knows how much she would have had to reveal in order to satiate their appetite that night? Well, she had a clue, and she wasn't going. Have you ever wondered about Xerxes' choice of women? Either the king had notoriously bad luck in choosing girls, or he was secretly attracted to independent-minded women, and he didn't even realize it. His first wife, Queen Vashti, refused to come when summoned. His second wife, Queen Esther, came to him without his summons, twice. Striking similarity there. The point is, Vashti's refusal was a courageous stand. And any time somebody chooses not to compromise their moral integrity, that is a courageous stand. Most of us will never have to refuse to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk people so that they can lust. But there may be other things against which, against which we are called 
to make a stand. How about this one? The temptation to listen to or pass on gossip about somebody. The opportunity to marginalize somebody, to publicly shame somebody, to cheat somebody, to lie about somebody. Anytime a person chooses to stand on what's right, to make the choice of no compromise, it takes courage because it may cost. And that's scary. It may cost friendship. It may cost popularity or influence or financial. Uh, there may be a financial price even or a physical price. But that's okay. If choosing the right was always an easy choice, everybody would do it, and it would be no big deal. Do you think that Vashti figured that her choice might be expensive? I think she probably knew what it would likely cost. And in an ironic twist, her punishment becomes exactly what she wished for. Vashti refuses to come Xerxes burns with rage. He summons his nobles, and in an extraordinary effort to save his public honor, he commands them to come up with a suitable punishment for her disobedience. But all of his friends, all of his public officials, they're not thinking of Xerxes' honor. They are certainly not thinking that what Vashti did was in fact honorable. They don't have a clue. They are thinking only of themselves. They are thinking that if Vashti chooses the moral high ground and gets away with it, their own wives might be emboldened to choose the moral high ground and think they can get away with it too, just like Vashti. So they come up with a punishment because evil hates it when somebody chooses the moral high ground. And evil will always try to punish you for making that choice. But remember, Jesus said, don't be afraid of them when they persecute you. Hey, they persecuted me. Jesus said, blessed are you. Happy are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Can't take that away. So the nobles of Persia come up with a punishment. They say, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. See, she got what she wanted in spades. And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Better than she. I think she did pretty good, don't you? Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their drunk husbands, from the least to the greatest. All right, the word drunk isn't in there, but you get the idea. And isn't the irony here delicious? Xerxes makes a law that all the women in the realm have to respect their husband, but his own wife doesn't respect him. I mean, in the eyes of his nobles, he is the most powerful, most impotent man in the whole kingdom. 
And Vashti, Vashti refuses to degrade herself. She refuses to trade on her beauty for the purpose of making men lust. What does she get? Banishment. Loss of royal privilege. Loss of influence and power. It was a calculated risk. She knew what it might cost her, and it did. Could have been her life. What do you think Jesus might say to Queen Vashti? It's okay, Vashti. Don't be afraid of them. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, we have a word that describes someone who uses their natural, God-given gifts to do wrong things and to do immoral things for a reward. Do you remember what that word is? It's the word prostitute. You prostitute yourself when you use good things that God has given you for wrong in order to get something you want. In Vashti's case, she was gorgeous, good-looking, and she knew it. People liked to look at Vashti. Men liked to look at Vashti. And you know the sad thing about a lot of people who are good-looking and they know they're good-looking? A lot of them are not afraid to use what they have to get what they want. But Queen Vashti was not like that. She could have prostituted herself, satiated the lust of her husband and all of his buddies, the implied reward being that she would have remained in her royal position, she could have maintained her lifestyle of comfort and power, but she would have been a lesser person. And she would have died a little bit. Instead, she said, no. It was a courageous stand. So in the end, Vashti suffered. But Xerxes suffered too. If you read chapter 2, you find that after he sobers up, he remembers Vashti. And he remembers what a woman she was. He recalls not only her physical beauty, but her character and her integrity, her goodness. He sorrows, the Bible says, because he realizes he's the real loser. He's the one who lost the most, not Vashti. But his remorse doesn't last long. He's immediately in pursuit of the next piece of arm candy, which is where the story of Esther begins. Little does he realize what he's going to get when he marries Esther. Two heroines, two queens who make the difficult choice to stand fast for moral principle. Vashti refuses to yield to wrong. Esther chooses to actively expose evil. Both heroines had a lot to lose, and one did. Esther's story turns out happily ever after. Vashti's, not so much. She spent the rest of her natural life hidden away, cloistered, imprisoned, and forgotten, but not by all. And her story remains a powerful, albeit obscure, example to us, every one of us. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Down through time, 
Esther has served as a role model for a lot of Christian girls. Maybe Vashti could serve as a role model too. 30 or 40 years ago, there was a, used to be a popular song about taking a stand for right. It was called, Dare to be a Daniel. Well, maybe there ought to have a song called, Dare to be a Vashti. I want to close today by telling you the story of a modern-day heroine cut from the same cloth as Esther and Vashti. A woman who had huge moral authority simply because she chose to do what was right, no matter the cost. I want to close by telling the, the story of, of uh, Mother Teresa. When Vashti and, and Esther chose to do what was right, both gained what we might call moral authority. And this woman, Mother Teresa, over the course of her life, she gained moral authority as well, and she became respected throughout the whole world. Moral authority is not something that you can buy, borrow, steal, or manufacture. It just comes to you when you consistently do what's right and you refuse to do what's wrong. But when you have it, it means that people tend to listen to you because your life is beyond reproach. They may not want to listen to you. They may not like what you say because what you say may prick their consciences. But they have to listen and they know it. Because in the end, you're upright. Mother Teresa's vision was to establish an order of nuns whose sole purpose was to care for people who lived in conditions unworthy of human dignity. She defied the counsel of her peers, her friends, and supervisors, and even the authoritative voice of her church, who all told her not to do it. But she knew that God was calling her to do it, and so she persisted in her vision. In 1950, she founded the Missionaries of Christ to seek out and care for the poor, abandoned, sick, and dying. She chose the streets of what was then known as Calcutta to be her parish. In 1952, she finally got permission to use a section of an abandoned temple for their first enterprise, a home for the dying. Mother Teresa named it Hermal Haridi. And still today, the poor in Kolkata, who would have died alone on the streets, can find comfort and solace in their final hours of life within its walls. It didn't take long for Hindu priests to, to oppose what Mother Teresa's Christian mission was doing. Their consciences were pricked. One time, a priest led a mob to the gates of Hmral Haridi, demanding the missionaries immediately cease. It is reported that Mother Teresa herself came out and personally addressed the mob with these words. If you want to kill me, here I am. You may behead me, but do not disturb my poor patients. That would be a courageous stand, don't you think? I think it would be. Not long after that, the nuns got the opportunity to demonstrate their sincerity. 
It came to the attention of Mother Teresa that one of the Hindu priests was in the advanced stages of tuberculosis because he had passed the point where treatment would be effective and they wouldn't give him a room in the hospital any longer. In a gesture of kindness and grace, Mother Teresa brought the dying Hindu priest to Hermal Haraiti and personally cared for him until he passed away. And then the nuns carried his body down to the Hindu temple so that he could have Hindu rites. They captured the hearts of the people of Calcutta, and Mother Teresa's moral authority began to accumulate. In fact, throughout her lifetime, Mother Teresa's primary credential was her moral authority, garnered by how she lived her life. And that authority, in turn, garnered her audiences with influential people, eventually with the most influential and powerful people in the world. But even when she found herself thrust into unfamiliar and sometimes hostile halls of power, she maintained the courage of her convictions. She stood fast on moral principle, and she was always courageous. The story I'm going to tell you now is, was related by Peggy Noonan. Peggy Noonan was, among other things, speechwriter to Ronald Reagan. You know that presidents don't write their own speeches, right? You know that. They have teams of people who write their speeches, even President Obama, even President Biden, maybe especially President Biden. They don't write their own speeches. They just read them. Peggy Noonan was Reagan's speechwriter, and she witnessed this incident with Mother Teresa, and she wrote it down. It's in her book, What I Saw at the Revolution, and I'm just going to read it to you, okay, like presidents do with their speeches. These are Peggy Noonan's words now. On February 3rd, 1994, Mother Teresa came to Washington and gave a speech that left the entire audience dazzled, and part of it dismayed, including a United States senator who turned to his wife after Mother Teresa concluded and said, is my jaw up yet? It was the national annual prayer breakfast at the Hilton Hotel, and 3,000 people were there, including most of official Washington. By tradition, the President of the United States and the First Lady always attend. And on this day in 1994, Bill and Hillary Clinton were up there on the dais, as were the Vice President and Mrs. Gore and a dozen other important people, senators and Supreme Court justices. As she stepped up onto a little platform that had been placed beneath the podium, there was great applause. She nodded at it. Then she took her speech in her hand and began to read from it in a soft, sing-songy voice. The audience was composed of liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, and moderates of all persuasion. Perhaps half were seriously devout Christians, while the other half was a mix, and they were good-natured, and they were an attentive mix. But the speech became more pointed as it went on. I can never forget the experience I had in the sitting room where they kept all these old parents and sons of daughters and sons and daughters who had just put them into the institution and forgotten them, Mother Teresa spoke. I saw that 
These old people, they had everything, good food, comfort, television, everything. But everyone was looking toward the door. And I did not see a single one with a smile on their face. I turned to a sister and I asked, Why do these people who have every comfort here, they are looking toward the door. Why are they not smiling? I'm so used to seeing smiles on our people. Even the dying ones smile. And sister said to me, This is the way it is nearly every day. They are expecting, they are hoping that the son or the daughter will come visit them. They are hurt because they are forgotten. Mother Teresa continued, But I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion. Because Jesus said, If you receive a little child, you receive me. So every abortion is the denial of receiving Jesus, the neglect of receiving Jesus. Well, total silence when she said that. Cool, deep silence in that cool, round cavern for just about 1.8 seconds. And then applause started on the right-hand side of the room and spread and deepened. And now the room was swept with people applauding, and they would not stop for what I believe was five or six minutes. But not everyone applauded. The president and the first lady, seated within a few feet of Mother Teresa on the dais, were not applauding, nor were the vice president and Mrs. Gore. They looked like seated statues in a museum. They glistened in the lights and moved not a muscle, looking at the speaker in a determined, semi-pleasant way. Now, Mother Teresa is not perhaps schooled in the ways of world capitals and perhaps did not know that having said her piece and won the moment, she was supposed to go back to the airier, less dramatic assertions on which we all agree. Instead, she said this, Abortion is really a war against the child, and I hate the killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself, and if we accept that the mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love one another, but to use violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. Mother Teresa then spoke of fighting abortion with adoption, of telling hospitals and police stations and frightened young girls, please don't kill the child. I want the child. Give me the child. I am willing to accept any child who would be aborted and give that child to a married couple who will love the child and be loved by the child. Perhaps Mother Teresa didn't know or even care that her words were, as they say, not healing words, but divisive, dividing not only Protestant from Catholic, but Catholic from Catholic. It was all so unhappily unadorned, explicit, impolitic, and it was wonderful, like a big, fresh drink of water, bracing in its directness and in its uncompromising tone. And Mother Teresa seemed not to notice, nor to care. She finished her speech to a standing ovation and left as she had entered, 
silently through a parted curtain in a flash of blue and white. And Peggy Noonan finishes her story with this comment. Mother Teresa could do this, of course, because she had monumental moral authority. What an image. A tiny, slightly stooped woman standing on a box so as to allow her to be seen over the lectern, addressing some of the most powerful men and women in the world. And packed into that aging frame was enough moral authority to lay low anyone who dared even to raise a finger against her. And that comes little by little from having the courage to stand, from choosing to do what's right like Queen Esther did and refusing to do what's wrong like Queen Vashti did, even though it may be costly. So this week, I challenge you to pray that Vashti's calm strength and her courageous no will live on in your life and in all of our lives here as we live to represent and to please our King. So let's stand, and we're going to sing a, a song of 